You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Samantha Downing on the show. She has an amazing new book. It's called For Your Own Good. And um, this is one of those books that uh, that I could not put down. And for several different reasons, uh, it is uh, witty and uh, deliciously evil in a lot of places and reminded me way too much of my uh, high school experience. Uh, but uh, what a fantastic read. This is a must grab uh, for your summer to be red pile uh, for your own good available everywhere. Now, whatever format it, you prefer to read in, you can grab it. Welcome to the show, Samantha. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful intro. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Samantha, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Uh, I think it just came from being such a big reader. I was a huge reader growing up. Um, we used to, my mom used to take us to the library all the time, and it was always an exciting thing to go get new books. I didn't think about writing, I think, until I got my first computer. And I'm not much of a longhand writer. And when I got my first computer, I thought I I could actually start writing my own stories now. And that's sort of how it started. So, um, when, you know, most of us go, th- a lot of people will have um, these early desires and, and know that they have the storytelling gene or, or you know, however you want to look at that. Um, but most of us get, uh, you know, sidetracked by starting families, you know, getting careers cranked up and, you know, this little thing uh, called life gets in the way of pursuing those dreams. What was it that brought it back around uh, for you? Um, I wrote mainly as a hobby. I didn't study writing. I didn't set out to become a writer. I went on and had a whole another career in totally that's something that had nothing to do with writing whatsoever but I continued writing as a hobby for years and um it wasn't something I thought was possible everything I knew about publishing it seemed like an impossibility to be able to get published or at least traditionally published and I joined a writers group and it was because of someone in that writers group that took my book and sent it in for me that I'm even published so um, that was, and that book was my 12th book that I had written. So I had written a lot of books over 20 years and had practiced the craft for a very long time. And then when it happened, I was published very quickly. So, um, it sort of all snowballed into one moment in one book. <laughs> I, I had this great conversation a, a couple of years back with Brandon Sanderson, uh, the, the enormously mm-hmm. popular fantasy writer. And and he told the story, a very similar story to yours, that that he uh, it was actually his 13th novel uh, that got published. 
And and he said, you know, and, you know, people look at writers that will write that many full novels and and not, you know, them not, not get published. And you just start another one. And and you're like, well, what drives you to keep doing that? And and he said that that he came to the realization that he was a writer. He was a storyteller. Whether someone wanted to buy that or not made no difference to him. It was this is what he would do. And he said, if if I never would have been published, then my children would have, you know, inherited, you know, just a house full of finished manuscripts because I was going to finish doing it, whether anybody wanted to buy it or not. Did you have those sorts of feelings or, you know, did you look at, you know, this is just my hobby. I do it for me. And, uh, you know, during those years of writing novels that didn't get published, how did you view what it was that you were doing? Uh, I completely looked at it as a hobby the same way someone goes home at night and plays the guitar, but they don't ever think they're going to be standing in Madison Square Garden playing the guitar or they cook or they garden or whatever their hobby is, whatever their thing is. Um, Writing was just what I did. I didn't I didn't think of it beyond that. I didn't think of it as I'm a storyteller or I'm a writer officially or whatever. It was just something I did and I really liked doing. Um, and it, I, I don't even, I, I don't know if there's our natural born storytellers or if it's something we, a skill that we hone and there's so many different ways to tell a story. You can be a storyteller in a lot of different ways. So, um, it really, really just a hobby. I didn't even try to get published. I didn't query. I didn't try to get an agent. I just wrote and concentrated on the writing and concentrated on trying to be good at it because since I had not studied it and I had no no background in it or any classes in it or anything I just wanted to be able to tell a good story well your your books that uh that are out now my lovely wife uh he started it and now the new book for your own good uh, you know definitely uh fit into a vein of uh of, of genre um have you always been interested in you know, kind of these sly, darker tales? I have. I grew up reading a lot of thrillers. My family read them, so they were always around the house. And um, I also, I really like dark humor, and I really like um, the combination of the two, the dark humor and the sort of psychological thriller. I don't like things that are bleak and depressing, and I don't want people I don't want it to, a book to feel heavy. I don't. I don't necessarily like to read those kind of books, and I don't want to write them. Um, I think there has to be humor in it, especially when you have murder in it. <laughs> there right. has to be some balance to it, otherwise you just end up with dark books that make everybody feel horrible, <laughs> and that's not my intention. Well, dark humor is uh, is it one of those things that either you're you're born with. Um, with that way of looking at the world or is it something that you practice at like there's a fine line sometimes between dark humor and and being um you know across the line uh so to speak or do you think about um you know how how you're coming across uh what what sort of self-editing do you do when it comes to dark humor and and things that may be more edgy um, I do. I'm naturally a very sarcastic person. So a lot of that is 
my own internal observations that come out in the book, especially with one-liners. They're just things I think of, and it it I put it in the book. Um, my first book, My Lovely Wife, was about a couple that had been married for 15 years and had two kids and lived in a gated community in Florida and had this nice little suburban life going, and they got bored, and they became serial killers. And it's that's a dark thought. And uh, I didn't know how many people would be into that or would want to read that. I was surprised that so many did. But a comment I heard a lot was, I, I feel guilty for enjoying this, or I shouldn't <laughs> have enjoyed this as much as I did. So it's one of those things where you laugh and then you think, I shouldn't have been laughing at this. <laughs> and I kind of love that reaction, but I, I do understand it. So there are times when I think, but, you know, I have to depend on my editor or my agent to say, oh, this might be over the top dark or, you know, that's that's not really funny. Or if if it's if it's over the top, somebody else has to tell me because I I can't see it. I, I will think of it as funny and or as um, something clever. And someone else might say, no, no, that's too much. <laughs> <laughs> We have these conversations all the time, uh, you know, about thrillers and, uh, you know, why it is that we are drawn to stories that, you know, that ultimately scare us. Um, you know, but there's something about r- reading a, a scary or, you know, pulse pounding story from the safety of your own home and where, you know, nothing actually bad is happening to you. And and there's something cathartic about reading about this happening to somewhere else. Um, the same thing goes with with dark humor. Um, you know, what what do you think it is that we love about, you know, getting to laugh in uncomfortable situations or, you know, find the humor in in something that uh, maybe most of society would frown on? Well, I think in terms of the, the the pulse pounding thriller being scared, um, fear is the strongest emotion that we have. There's nothing stronger than it. It's what keeps us alive and and keeps that whole fight or flight thing going. Um, I I think that people like to read about situations that they will they could they can relate to, but they but it goes to a point where you can't really. You've never really experienced it. Most of us have never um, known somebody that's been murdered, killed maybe, but not murdered. Most of us have never investigated a murder. Most of us are not, do not have a murder spree happening in their neighborhood or a serial killer in their neighborhood. These are not things. General, (laughs) right? The general public, there aren't that many people that can closely relate to that. So uh, I think that that. If, as long as it's based in something we're familiar with, like a suburban neighborhood, like, yes, I recognize that neighborhood or I recognize that high school. Um, that's the in in the story. That's what lets people uh, ha- have some re- re- relation to it. And then it goes off on a tangent into a whole dark storyline that you can't even conceive of. And that's where the story gets fun for me. But I think you always have to start with something familiar, at least for my books anyways, that's what I like to do. And in terms of the humor, I I mean, humor is always subjective. There are probably people that read my books that don't think they're funny, but 
they they are supposed to be uh, I don't know lighthearted. Not, I don't want to say lighthearted thrillers, but there's it, just not depressing. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're the opposite of depressing. Yeah. Well, when when my lovely wife um, got picked up, not only did you have a your hobby you know, was, was validated in the sense that, you know, someone wanted to publish it and, and, you know, this story was going to get out to the world, but then it, it kind of took on a life of its own and it's now going to be a, 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 you know, a major movie uh, coming up. W- what was that feeling like that emotional roller coaster that, you know, going from your hobby to, you know, now it's just completely blown up. Right. And and that was crazy because when I first got the publishing contract, um, it I still had my day job. I had I didn't have any plans to to stop and, and quit my job and become a full time writer or anything. And then the book started getting bigger. And then I had a call from my agent who had she works with a film agent in L.A. who's now my film agent or book to film agent who tries to sell books into Hollywood and somebody wanted to option it. And then that was crazy because that, you know, as a writer, you dream of that, of not only getting your book published, but then it gets to become a TV show or a movie. And um, it just started getting a lot of buzz and it got bigger and it was, it was crazy. I, 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 the response really surprised me that people wanted to read something that was that dark and that crazy. Cause it wasn't, the book is, from um, the husband's point of view in My Lovely Wife. And there is, it's not a detective chasing a serial killer. Like you're in the serial killer's head. So the, you're in one of their heads anyways. And that's that's a dark way to go through a book. <laughs> so <laughs> without, the, without the humor balancing it out, it would be very, very dark. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process. The concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, 
to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. When you followed that book up um, with a a family road trip gone horribly wrong, and he started it, um, which is is just hilarious in its own right. Um, But For Your Own Good is the new book that that we're here to talk about today. And uh, Samantha, I'm fascinated with the beginnings of things, with the the moment of inspiration. It, It one moment for your own good doesn't exist in any form, fashion, it uh, it it just doesn't exist. And then either uh, you start thinking about uh, a place, and then characters that that populate that place, or you start thinking of a, a plot point, uh, or, or maybe a character that just reveals herself to you. And and then all of a sudden, you know, these characters start doing their thing, and then. In in some fashion, for your own good does exist, and then it's your job as the writer to kind of uncover the story out of this stuff. What is that first moment of inspiration like for you? For this one, uh, I knew I wanted to write about a teacher, and the first book was about a nuclear family. The second book was siblings on a road trip, and the third book I wanted to explore the effect that teachers have on kids and on students, the impact that they have on them, because next to parents, they probably are the adults that spend the most time with kids and have a huge influence on who they are. So what happens when one of those teachers is a psychopath? And the thing about psychopaths is we don't know they're psychopaths until they're either arrested or they murder somebody or you you just don't know. They hide in plain sight, right? So what happens when one of them is teaching your kids? And that's really what Teddy is. So I started with this idea of a teacher. He has his own criteria for grading kids and for writing their recommendation letters. And he understands the power that he has to impact their lives. And it's not necessarily based on merit in his in his mind. So I started with that and just the story unfolded from there. 
so Samantha, what was your uh, school experience with, and and did uh, or what was your school experience like, and and did you get to um, sort of uh, vicariously fix some things that that you wish would have gone differently when you were in school? Yeah, definitely. I did not go to a private school, and I'm not from the Northeast, and this is one of those old world private schools in the Northeast. I'm from California, and so that those kind of schools were like this far off world to me that didn't even really exist. They're the type of things I saw in movies and books and TV shows, and those schools where important people sent their kids and they all knew each other. It's like a little club or something. So I, I, it, it's always just had a mystique about it. So I wanted to um, invent one and write about what that world would be like. And uh, I and, and the kid, the main kid in this story is Zach Ward, and he is very popular and rich and entitled and good looking. And I was definitely not a popular kid in school, so I got to pretend to be a popular kid. <laughs> so did, <it's> fun. <laughs> did you do anything to to familiarize yourself with? this type of school uh, because like you, it sounds like you and I had a probably a a very similar, um, you know, public school experience. And um, but you you really make us feel like we're there in those halls with you. What what did you do to to get into the setting and to really bring that across on the page? Um, I have a writer's group and in my writer's group is a teach ex teacher from a private school. So who taught in both public and private schools. So luckily she was there to keep me on point about the kinds of things that would be happening and the kinds of things they would be a- allowed to get away with. Um, the kind of things that Teddy does might not necessarily be possible at a, at a public school where the, where the lesson plans are more strict and, the standardized testing and that kind of thing. So Teddy has a lot more leeway at a private school in terms of his grading and, and that kind of thing. So um, that that played an element in putting it in a private school. And in this book, class plays a huge part in who Teddy is, class and wealth and entitlement, because he is a teacher on a teacher's salary, not wealthy, did not go to private schools and he's teaching kids that drive nicer cars than he has and live in giant houses and have these wonderful lives planned out where they go to Ivy League schools and become successful and prosperous and he has a real problem with that <laughs> so and he has he is an underdog in his mind he is always the underdog and um, has to fight his way out of it so you're you're playing with a really interesting dynamic here um that um you know Teddy comes across as and we've all had teachers like this that that push students to be better and uh, you know um and can border on you know the obnoxious um but Teddy literally takes it too far um did, you know were you were you drawing from uh uh, from a, did you have a a particular person in mind when you or were you just thinking of kind of the most um, you know, obnoxious evil um, person that that really had an axe to grind? 
Yeah, it wasn't a particular person I was thinking of. I was just thinking of what it would be like to be in that position and how angry it would make you. I've actually heard from teachers that have read the book and said they completely understand where Teddy is coming from. They just don't agree with his actions, but they understand the sentiment. And I heard from one teacher that said, um, uh, knew someone that taught at a private school like this, and the kids would threaten to sue if they didn't like the assignment that they got. They would say, my parents are going to sue you. And imagine being a teacher, and these are what the kids are saying to you. That must be how angry it would make you. So Teddy is just someone who acts on that, and most people do not. They would just quit or something. (laughs) But um, Teddy doesn't. Teddy believes what he is doing is for the good of the kids and that the kids need this kind of lesson, that they need to be taught that what they're doing is not right and that it and even if he messes up their life because of a recommendation letter that he writes it's for their own good they will be better people because of him well what's what's so funny is that or or maybe not funny is the the right word but um is that um what teddy's doing is uh is can come from a good place but it, it, you know, but but it 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 goes too far, and I think we've all found ourselves in in a point where we're just fed up, and and you know where normal people can can just snap and go too far. Um, what is it that makes a character like Teddy become who he is? Um, I think his up. I think where he, I don't even know if it's so much his upbringing, but where he is now and being surrounded in this social structure, there, there's not only the class structure with students, there's a structure within the teachers. And some teachers are more highly regarded than others because they went to Belmont Academy and then they, they've come back to become teachers. And they are thought of as being better than those who did not attend Belmont Academy. So. These type of class structures really pit people against each other. And this is just a microcosm of that. And it's all amplified within the walls of a single school where there are just multiple um, differences between the people that are made very obvious to everyone. And they make some people feel good and they make some people feel bad. When when you're writing a story like this, do you ever... Um... Is there ever a point where you write something and you go, nah, that that's just not believable? You know, that that's that's too far over the line. Um, how do you, how do you balance the the outrageous things that characters can do while grounding it enough in reality that uh, you know that as the reader we feel like, oh my gosh, th- this could be me on a bad day. Well, sometimes I. I can't tell. I have to depend on other other people to tell me that this is not believable. That's why that's that's the key is having a great editor that will say, no, this is not something that can happen. Um, I should also say I write far more than what is ever published and not specifically to this book. I write every day. I write stories that don't go anywhere. I write half a story and I throw it out. It's all just practice to me. so I I write things con- constantly. It's it's just a it's just a constant thing, and it may not ever be a book, 
or it may be a book that I throw out. I throw out entire books, even now, even after I've been published, or it may be an idea that was so far out there just to begin with. It's just not even publishable. It's just offensive at some level. So <laughs> it, 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 I, I try it out and I see if it works. And sometimes it hits and a lot of times it doesn't. So not all my ideas are great ones or at least not publishable ones. Do, do you ever find, you know, when you when you have a story that is just not going somewhere and you're like, well, oh, th- this is not going to work. Let me start on something else. Do you ever... Uh, you know, rob those stories for parts, uh, as it were, you know, like, well, you know, this story may not have gone anywhere, but this character or this situation, maybe that needs to plug into this other thing that I have an idea for. Uh, sometimes a, a character maybe, or a scenario, um, I don't, not in, not a whole lot, but there, yeah, there are some things I do. Yes. I'll create a character that works better in an, or the idea of a character that can work in something else. So it does happen. Do you do you uh, get a feeling when you're writing that, you know, okay, this, this is a story that has legs, or does it just get to a point and just runs out of gas? And, and you know, do you, do you have a feeling from the beginning when, when something, when there's that certain magic there? Not from the beginning. It takes me about 20,000 words. 20,000, okay. I can't. I I've thrown out more things at 20,000 words than I can count. And, and it's like either the story expands and gets bigger or uh, it, or I, I'm, I might even just lose interest in it. Maybe the story just isn't coming interesting to me and I don't even want to continue it. So, um, but by 20,000 words, I, I pretty much know, and I can write 20,000 words pretty quickly. So if I'm really into the story, but sometimes then I just don't know where to go after that. I don't, some, some ideas I have are not meant to be entire books and they're not big enough to be an entire book. Um, you wrote an audible original called sleeping dogs lie, um, that, uh, that I found really interesting. Uh, do you, how do you feel about audiobooks at this point? Um, I, I've I've gotten more into them. The uh, at first I, it wasn't a a thing for me to listen to books just because of the it's just a different method of hearing it and the concentration it took to do it. But now now I find that I get in the mood for them and I listen to them and I really love the Audible shorts or or just the shorter novellas uh, because I can listen to it in one set sitting and it's not something I listen to over a period of days and I can just be all in on the story for an an hour or two, whatever it is. And, um, that format works for me. Well, I've, I've talked to some writers who say that now because audiobooks are kind of exploding in popularity that they now think, um, in terms of, uh, when they're writing, you know, what it's going to sound like, like for, for your own good, they, you know, they would kind of, cast it for for um you know lack of a better term and and what would these voices sound like and how is it going to be interpreted when some read when someone reads it aloud um do you ever think of things like that or when when does the reader response um come into your thinking or or does it at all is this just completely um you know for your enjoyment uh, through the writing 
Um, I don't think of it in terms of an audiobook when I'm writing it. That doesn't occur to me. Um, the reader response, um, I try not to think about it. I try to just write what I want to write. I mean, when, when you get, once you get published and you start getting feedback and reviews and industry reviews and Goodreads and people telling you what they think, it, it can get in your head and you really have to block it out because one opinion is not um, more, any more important than another opinion. So it, people that concentrate on only the great reviews it doesn't mean that there's no merit to the bad reviews. And it may just be that the book wasn't for that person. Not every book is for every person. I certainly have seen reviews that says, say my books are too dark and it wasn't for them. And they didn't want to read books that were that dark and that's fine. Um, when you hear, when you read reviews about the writing itself or that pull out particular points in the book, that's, that stuff can get into your head and you can, you can give it too much too much importance. The same way you can give the good reviews too much importance. They really are all equal. Everybody's opinion is equal. Everybody's voice is equal. So there, you can't, it, then it just starts to become a game in your head. So you, you really, when you're writing, you really have to put all that stuff aside as much as possible. But it is very difficult because when there's so much out there. For Your Own Good is available everywhere now. It, uh, if you like to read on your Kindle, or if you'd, uh, you know, like to hold the paper in your hand and turn the pages, you can get it in hardcover. Um, also, an uh, Audible audiobook, as we mentioned. Uh, there's going to be links in the show notes where you can grab it in any format that you choose, or run down to your local bookstore and, and grab a physical copy. And uh, let's support bookstores right now, um, Samantha. This is so much. I've never smiled so much while horrible things happen to other people. <laughs> and and a, a love for your own good so much. Uh, we're just recommending everyone grab a copy of it. Um, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Uh, my website is samanthadowning.com. And there are links there to my social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, so I'm... I'm there, and I have a newsletter, too, if you want to subscribe, and you'll get all the news. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, we will send everyone to see you. Samantha, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Ansbach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter One, the army of the dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. 
Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons, which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the Army of the Dead advancing on us? Claymore Mines, the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne, had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton, were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymores' sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages, worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales, green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some, rotting boots, helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts, beads and charms dangling from bone wrists, Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, 
draped about the spine where the throat should be, where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence, malignantly so. Walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.